The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Hi, welcome to Recovery the Hero's Journey. I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan. The title of today's podcast is When Someone You Love Has a Problem with Cannabis. The legalization of cannabis is rapid. It's widespread. America's new big business. The medical use of cannabis is now legal in 36 states and D.C. The recreational use of cannabis is legal in 17 states and D.C., A Harvard neuroscientist, Jody Gilman, who researches the effects of cannabis on teenage brains, said it best when she said, and I quote, it's the only medicine ever voted on in a ballot box, not not approved through the FDA or backed by research, unquote. Right now, there are only four FDA-approved cannabis medications to date, and they are for controlling rare pediatric seizures, nausea in cancer chemotherapy, and weight loss and loss of appetite in people with HIV and AIDS. There are no other cannabis products that have been approved by the FDA as medicine. What we have now are super high-strength cannabis products that are sold through dispensaries. These products lack the quality control of FDA-approved medicines. The dispensaries are not regulating the dose, the potency of THC, or the purity of these products. Some products contain 75% THC or higher. Colorado is currently attempting to cap the concentration of THC at 15%. Because of the vulnerability of their developing brains, adolescents and young adults are particularly at risk. Parents are worried and are wondering how to protect their children from developing problems with cannabis in a culture where the country is calling it medicine and all their kids' uh, friends are doing it. I am super happy to introduce our expert guest today. Lawrence Westrake, MD, is a psychiatrist who specializes in the treatment of patients diagnosed with substance use disorders. Dr. Westrake completed a residency in psychiatry at New York's Beth Israel Medical Center and a two-year fellowship in addiction psychiatry at New York University Bellevue Hospital. He is board certified in general psychiatry, addiction psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry. Dr. Westreich is Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry, New York University School of Medicine, and the author of Helping the Addict You Love and A Parent's Guide to Teen Addiction. Dr. Westreich is past president of the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry and serves as consultant on behavioral health and addiction to the Commissioner of Major League Baseball. Welcome, Dr. Westreich. Thank you for coming today. Well, thank you for having me. What do you mean to start off by cannabis? Is that the same as marijuana, weed, pot? Cannabis is a broad term for all kinds of preparations, which include THC. So I and other people writing in the field use cannabis as a broad term to include both smoked 
marijuana to include the um, uh, gummy bears that have high amounts of THC in them to include vaped THC. And so we're sort of using it to encompass all of the methods within with which people can ingest uh, THC. Oh, got it. And what is CBD? CBD is a is another compound within cannabis, and uh, the CBD of itself has some indications for treating pediatric seizures. And obviously, you can see in the news and everywhere else that it's claimed to treat a number of other things. But what's clear, though, is that CBD has no psychoactive effects. So there's no dependence on CBD. Uh, no one gets high with CBD. And so um, in my view, in a lot of people's view, it's, it's at the worst harmless. The issue with CBD that I'd like my patients to be aware of is that all of the preparations except for the pharmaceutical grade CBD, which is not really widely available, are contaminated with small amounts of THC. So if you're having sophisticated drug tests and you take CBD, you may come up with a positive for THC. So that's a problem in an employment context and can be a problem in other, other contexts. And I'm very careful not to make a uh, comments on uh, the efficacy of CBDs. That's really not my forte. Uh, I treat people with addiction problems, not with, not who are using CBD for, uh, rec- for uh, therapeutic reasons. Okay, thanks. That helps quite a bit. Can you help us understand about the, the potency of today's cannabis? Uh, because I remember I graduated from a fellowship in addiction psychiatry back in 98. And I don't know about you, but I don't remember seeing a lot of people with marijuana use disorder back then. It's a very good point. And I'm glad you brought it up early on because it's very important. It's very, I have a practice which treats addiction and probably 95% of my patients are addiction patients. It's pretty typical in my practice that will someone will come in having smoked a few joints and ended up in the emergency department because they, they hadn't smoked marijuana since they were in college, and that was 15 or 20 years ago, and they think that the potency is the same. Um, It's not. Um, The potency of the available THC, both in smoked marijuana, is probably double what it was 15 or 20 years ago. In the gummy bears and in the uh, solutions of THC that are available, it can be up to 90% THC that person ingests. So this is what's associated in in very short order with psychosis, with hallucinations, delusions, and and really uh, scary stuff that happens. And it's usually by relatively inexperienced THC users who go back to the use of THC, which they did years ago. And what about wax? I'm hearing a lot about wax and dabs. Uh, Apparently, uh, that's our most potent form of THC. Well, it's the way to get into the central nervous system as quickly as possible. And there are all kinds of uh, preparations that are being distributed at this point uh, by supplement suppliers. The idea is at, at this point, not really to stay away from law enforcement, because in most jurisdictions, it's not considered uh, criminally illegal to use marijuana, but it's to stay away from others who might know you're using marijuana. So the mom and dad won't know that Junior is, is using a vape pen or using wax in his or her bedroom because they can't smell anything. Maybe 30 years ago, you would have smelled the, the odor of marijuana coming out of the room, but now you can't smell anything. So the point is that people are able to get very, very potent THC into the systems very quickly, which causes much more severe problems than the, than the lower potency preparations. And I heard that dabs are now called the crack cocaine of uh, marijuana. Uh, and sometimes 85 to 95% pure THC, the concentrates. Yeah, I read a report that stated uh, they took a, a survey of eighth graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders, and about 24% of them admit 
in their lifetime to using the concentrated uh, dabs. So yeah, it's not the same drug, is it, as it was decades ago? No, it's not. And unfortunately, studies like you're referring to, like monitoring the future studies from Michigan, you know, they they rightly, understandably ask about your use of marijuana, not realizing that it's a very different drug from what it was 20 years ago. So this is one of the main points I make to parent groups, that although it seems benign, uh, in, in some circumstances, it's not benign. And since I'm an addiction psychiatrist, I see in my practice those circumstances where people are really harmed by the use of THC. Me too, especially over the last, say, I'd say five to five to eight years, more parents bringing in the high school kid who is, you know, having trouble in school or, you know, young college kids having trouble with marijuana, uh, even adults uh, presenting with marijuana problems. So is it addictive? I know in the past people laughed and, and thought it was a soft drug and wasn't, didn't have a uh, reputation for being addictive. Would you say that it's addictive now? Absolutely. Uh, You know, the DSM in 2013 added a withdrawal to the list of uh, consequences of of, uh, THC use. So it's very clear in the field that there is withdrawal from uh, THC, that it is addictive. Um, And notwithstanding all the advice that that people give their friends or that sometimes our kids here in health class, certainly uh, THC is addictive. The data are very clear that about between nine and 15% of people who try marijuana will meet DSM criteria for dependence six months later. Now, it's true that dependence on marijuana is different than dependence on on opioids and less dangerous and less likely to cause a fatal outcome. Nonetheless, They meet criteria for dependence in the sense they're spending a lot of time getting it. Um, They're letting go of responsibilities that they would otherwise take care of because of the drug. And they have sometimes withdrawal and uh, tolerance to the drug. So it's real dependence, it's real addiction, and it's real withdrawal. I always feel badly for the young person with a problem, primarily with marijuana, uh, because they say to me, I don't want to go to a Narcotics Anonymous group. I'm just going to be laughed out. You know, these are people who are recovering from, you know, crack addict, you know, dependency on crack cocaine or dependency on heroin. And they're going to laugh at me if I was brought down by weed. But I'm, I'm really glad that you're making that point. It's a, it's a different potency. It's a different drug. And uh, it's recognized for its addiction, uh, addictive potential. So if someone in the family or someone I loved had a problem with cannabis, how would it present? How would I know that this was indeed a problem? It's a good question. And, and the response is the way you would with any other addictive substance. And, and I don't uh, assess whether someone's got a problem with alcohol based on the volume that they drink. Some people have a drink every night for 40 years, never have a problem. Other people have a drink once or twice a month and crash the car every time. So, so we're looking for consequences of the use. So specifically for cannabis, the consequences can be difficulties in relationships because of the drugs. It can be difficulties, as you point out, in school or work because of the drug, sometimes health consequences, uh, lung consequences from smokers, some of the serious lung consequences from vapors of THC, we're looking for consequences. And with THC, especially with high school students, you have to look at the possibility of legal consequences. Um, There's not across the board legalization in this country. So you have to at least look at that as a potential problem for the for the adolescent. So, you know, I, I usually don't really pay much attention to how much of a substance the person is using. I pay attention to what effect the substance is having on the person's life. So as a forensic psychiatrist, this is where it's very helpful. Even if it's a state where it's legal, if it's somebody under the age of 21, 
who has uh, the possession of marijuana and is caught by the police. Is there still a possession of marijuana charge? Yeah, in, in no jurisdiction is the use of THC legal for uh, people under the age of 21. Um, but even more than that, um, people often make the mistake of thinking even in states like California or Colorado, where there's been a, a decriminalization of, mm-hmm. of THC, that's a criminal it's in the criminal aspect of the law. In civil law, like in employment, there's no such. So someone can still be denied employment because they have a positive drug test for THC. They can still be terminated from their employment if they have a positive test for THC. I remember a family that brought in their teenager and uh, he was becoming increasingly irritable. He was punching holes in walls. And this had been previously a pretty well-behaved kid but now he was uh, 17 years old. He was punching walls and he threw a cell phone uh, over his uh, sister's head. The sister mm-hmm. was scared of him, truant from school, failing grades, pretty aggressive with both parents. It, definite personality change. Uh, the girlfriend was making complaints. She didn't like him smoking because uh, he, he changed when he was smoking. Money missing. Just is that typical? of a young kid who may be uh, using on a, on a regular or a daily basis? Well, it's typical of the kids I see and, I, and you see also, uh, you know, and, right. and I often say, I see the tip of the iceberg. I see kids who have serious problems with THC. So what you describe is actually very common. It, you know, THC is a sedative and it's a hallucinogenic. So it shouldn't surprise us that people are disinhibited by it and do things they wouldn't otherwise do. It shouldn't surprise us that people have hallucinations when they, use THC. That's what the molecule does. Um, And then it causes people to do things like get irritable with loved ones. It causes people to take money that they otherwise wouldn't do. It causes people to say really weird things and do really weird things. I remember one teenage boy that I saw a while back and he had gotten in a fight with his girlfriend and the girlfriend had gotten in her car and gone home and he uh, jumped in his own car, followed her at high speed, ran into the house uninvited, ran upstairs to a room screaming. The dad tried to throw him out. He was making all sorts of threats against the family. Mm-hmm. This, this was not a violent young person before he started smoking on a daily mm-hmm. basis. He got in trouble with the law that day, um, really mortified at his mm-hmm. behavior. You know, and I think she actually filed a restraining order against him. Uh, so uh, absolutely, yeah, uh, more irritability, more, vul- more uh, violent tendencies, more aggression. Um, and this, uh, sometimes parents will say to me, uh, he stopped playing lacrosse. He's given up playing the saxophone. Uh, everything he used to do, you know, he, he no longer wants to do. He mm-hmm. just, you know, he's, he's not the same person. Mm-hmm. So, so what are the dangers of cannabis use? Uh, the dangers, especially in the population that you're describing right there, is that um, heavy long-term use has clear uh, neuropsychological damage that it does to the adolescent brain. So someone's, so someone's achievement is likely going to be degraded by heavy early use of THC. Um, that being said, even kids who use relatively less can still have impairment in their academic function because of the use of the THC, even if it's just acute use, even if they miss a few classes or they're not as effective as, as they would be. And I see this often in um, younger people starting out their careers, where you see that the trajectory of their career has not taken them where you would expect their level of intelligence and education should take them. And sometimes people recognize that and they realize that they've, the marijuana they've 
been using has degraded their performance by 10, 15, 20%, which still allows them to succeed at work, but takes them off that early trajectory that would have led them to um, better achievement in their employment or better achievement in education, or frankly, better achievement in relationships. So, um, you know, it's very potent in the patients you and I see. And what about uh, loss of potential loss of IQ points if you're a uh, marijuana user under, especially under the age of 16, like an early initiator? I remember a study way back, I think it was a New Zealand study of a thousand kids. And I think it was up to eight IQ points they could, they could lose, right? Yes, I think the data are very clear that early heavy use of marijuana is detrimental to uh, neuropsychological functioning going forward, including memory, including executive function, including all the parameters that we use to succeed in the world. So um, that, that is disastrous. And the prevention people are very clear that the child who starts smoking and drinking too at the age of 12 or 13 is much, much worse off than the late adolescent who starts drinking when he or she is 17, 18, 19. Um, in in addition to the fact that they have better judgment at that age, um, their brain function has, um, their brain uh, morphology has improved to the point that they're less likely to be damaged at the older ages. Um, I, I would say anyone below the age of 24, 25 who smokes marijuana regularly is taking a big chance with their neuropsychological functioning going forward. I think there was a study in Canada that came out in an addiction journal uh, before Christmas of 2020 that followed uh, kids who were regular marijuana smokers, uh, paid them to stop for a month and follow, did extensive uh, cognitive testing on them and found a dramatic improvement in memory, even at the one month mark when these young people had stopped smoking. Uh, they probably yeah. all went back to smoking, but at right. It, it, what you're saying is it kind of suppresses, I guess it changes the brain structure and the brain function. It can heavy at heavy doses uh, at an early age. Exactly. And I would say both things. That study you mentioned looked at, at the acute effects of THC. So, mm -hmm. you know, th those uh, subjects were smoking a fair amount of marijuana, but it had not been for that long. And even so, they could find discrete cognitive deficits in those individuals. But for ones who start early and start heavy, um, they probably have a lifelong deficit because of the use of THC. And, and so those are the patients you and I see. There may be, you know, for every patient we see, there may be a hundred kids out there who smoke marijuana once in a while. To me, it's like whether or not you're allergic to peanuts. I mean, the ones who aren't allergic to peanuts eat peanuts. And the right. ones who are allergic end up in our offices you know, with serious problems. And I, I think that's the category of kid that has a problem with, with THC. They're just unlucky enough to be dependent on it. And who are the kids that are most at risk to develop a cannabis use disorder? Um, in my view, they're the ones who have um, parents who have a drug or alcohol issue and whether or not they give the substance to their kids, but, but that's the environment that they have. Um, I would say there is likely a genetic component to addiction in general. Certainly it's been proven with alcohol. And I think the, the geneticists tell us it's very likely with THC. So ones who come from an environment where there's a lot of drug use and then ones who are genetically vulnerable. Um, I think both the two of those together is, uh, is pretty, pretty worrisome. And, and the ADD kids too, right? Those are the kids that uh, I see a lot of uh, in my office, uh, kids with a history of ADHD, right? And some of them even say it helps their ADD. Uh, what, what, how do you respond to that? 
Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. The, the ADD people tell us that um, appropriately treating ADD pulls kids away from substances of abuse because they're not trying to medicate the, yeah. their ADD. Um, and I believe those data sets. Um, I also think that um, the, the student that tells me he, the, the uh, marijuana makes his ADD better, I don't buy it. I think it probably makes him feel a little better and less anxious about the failure in school. Um, but it's, it's hard for me to believe that a sedative would make uh, ADD better. I am so glad that you hit that point home. I have so many parents who say to me, I'm not going to treat my kid with stimulants. You know, there's this huge family history of drug addiction in the family. I don't want to set him up to be a drug addict. He's going to be addicted to meth. I don't want to expose him to stimulants. But the studies, like you say, that one of the biggest risk factors for developing cannabis use disorder is untreated ADD. And the way to treat it is to get the kid with ADD under the age of nine, put them on stimulants and treat them with stimulants for at least six years. Right. And the important piece in what you just said is treat them with stimulants. So as long as they are monitored and their use of the medication is very carefully calibrated to their symptom picture, you know, the data are very clear about stimulants that they're effective. It's when they're, you know, prescribed heedlessly by a physician who's not watching the prescriptions that they can become a problem. Now, what can I say if my child uh, argues that cannabis is natural and it's mostly legal? Um, I have a whole patter for when I get that line. Uh, the first <laughs> thing out of my mouth is usually, yeah, cyanide is natural too. That doesn't prove that it's safe. Um, but, but I also say that that's not really relevant. And I, I, I think it's fair for, for uh, a student to understand that all molecules are just molecules. So sugars are white powder, you know, cyanide's a white powder. Whether THC is legal or illegal is irrelevant to the effects on you. And, uh, and I, the fact that it's on schedule one for the feds doesn't make any sense to me either, but it's irrelevant to the young person who, as you said, has quit his or her sports team, is not going to school and has lost his or her friends. So right. um, the fact that it's legal makes no difference. It's a, it's a political uh, artifact. It's got nothing to do with clinical work. Um, the fact that it's natural, similarly, is interesting, but totally irrelevant. I agree. Is it a gateway drug? Um, that's a good question. It's been looked into quite a bit. Um, and I'm not so sure that it is actually, because mm-hmm. the denominator is so big. I mean, it's true that everyone um, who, who uses heroin started out with marijuana. It's also true, as my friend Bob Millman used to say, everyone who, who uses heroin also had milk on his cereal that morning. So oh, it, it's right. hard to know if one causes another. But I usually respond when I, in parents groups, when they ask that question, it, I say it doesn't need to be a gateway drug. It's dangerous enough by itself. So if your child is using marijuana on a regular basis, that's what needs to be looked into. I mean, other drugs also would be harmful, but the marijuana of itself is dangerous enough to be looked at in a serious way, I think. Someone mentioned at a conference recently that if you use marijuana, so you're an early initiator under the age of 18, that is the biggest risk factor for developing opioid use disorder. And I thought that was interesting. I think it was some Colorado consortium lunch and learn. And I thought that's the first time I've ever had uh, heard that. Uh, I have, I've heard a lot of people say things like that. I haven't heard or seen any convincing data to that effect. Um, Me neither. So I I don't, I I don't necessarily buy it. Um, You know, sometimes people make uh, causal links between things that are just associations. True enough. So uh, yeah, more, more research needed on that one. Right. Yeah. Right. Does cannabis have some medical uses? Um, 
experts in the field uh, of medical use of cannabis tell me yes. Um, my understanding is that there's FDA approval for uh, for treating uh, some pediatric seizures. That there is some uh, benefit for pain syndromes. There's certainly benefit for nausea related to chemotherapy, um, and and those are pretty convincing data sets. I'm told. I'm not an expert in that. Um, but the other things that it's touted for really have no uh, data behind them. For instance, the psychiatric disorders. Um, there's a lot of study being done about PTSD and about anxiety with THC. And if, if I see multiple randomized studies that are replicated, I'll believe it. Uh, before that, I wouldn't recommend a uh, unregulated substance for the use of any of those conditions because I think they're serious conditions. Um, and that being said, I see people who have serious problems with, with THC. So if there are people out there who are well-treated, they're not coming to my office. They're not coming to mine either. And I make people mad all the time. Uh, they come to me and say, please give me a card for medical marijuana, for my PTSD, for my anxiety, for my depression. And I rely on the statement, the American Psychiatric Association statement of 2019. And they basically say that it's there's not enough evidence to support using uh, cannabis to treat any psychiatric condition. And uh, the APA does not recognize cannabis as medicine at this point. So I think to your point, they are looking for more in-depth research that's convincing. Yes. And the APA actually says, in fact, cannabis uh, typically makes psychiatric conditions worse. And Absolutely. There, there's an association between um, heavy cannabis use in first breaks of schizophrenia. So um, I certainly wouldn't recommend it for the treatment of any condition, that, but I only treat psychiatric conditions. So there we are. Me too. And at this time, we're going to take a short break. I'm Patricia Halligan, and this is uh, Dr. Uh, Lawrence Westrake. We'll be right back. Thank you. Treatment of opioid use disorder is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This comprehensive video covers how to talk to patients about three FDA-approved treatment options the research behind each medication, and how to help patients choose the right medication for them. You'll learn everything you ever wanted to know about these treatment options to be able to treat patients in your office with ease. This video simplifies the prescribing of buprenorphine and includes buprenorphine home induction instructions for patients and pamphlets for patients and their families. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com for more information. Benzodiazepines. The Epidemic We Aren't Talking About is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This very comprehensive video describes the dangers of taking benzodiazepines and Z-drugs long-term and teaches how to de-prescribe them safely and effectively. We outline how to talk to your patients before, during, and after a long, slow Valium taper, how to build your patient a village of support, and offer a de-prescribing toolkit find out more about this package and what it includes. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com. You are listening to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. If you or someone you love struggles with a substance use disorder or prescription drug dependence and would like information about resources that can help, please contact one of the following organizations. The American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Now, back to recovery, the hero's journey. 
And we're back to Recovery, the Hero's Journey with our guest, Dr. Lawrence Westrake. And today's podcast is When Someone You Love Has a Problem with Cannabis. So Dr. Westrake, I think we'll pick up where we left off. What is the connection between mental health, if any, and cannabis? Uh, Oftentimes, uh, uh, psychiatric disorders are associated with the use of cannabis. And I'm saying that very carefully because sometimes um, psychiatric conditions can be caused by the use of cannabis. Certainly mm-hmm. depression and anxiety can be worsened by cannabis. Um, uh, uh, sometimes there's simply an association. I mean, it's not uncommon for someone with psychiatric symptoms to medicate their own symptoms with cannabis because it is sedating. Um, there's a very worrisome association between heavy cannabis use in a in late adolescence and first break of schizophrenia, of psychosis, when someone loses uh, touch with reality. And the data are becoming clearer that um, the heavy cannabis use can provoke the first break of schizophrenia. Um, it's not necessarily saying that it causes a schizophrenia, but it probably causes it to happen earlier than it would have otherwise. Um, as clinicians, and I'm sure you would in the same camp, we have to be careful of differentiating what causes what. Um, sometimes people who are having psychosis will medicate themselves with marijuana in order to tamp down their symptoms. Um, but it's a typical dual diagnosis problem. We have to pull it apart till we can get the right treatment going. And can you give an example for the listeners who don't understand what psychosis looks like in a young person, say heavy duty marijuana smoker, cannabis user, you know, from say 16 to 20 comes into your office. What does psychosis look like? Uh, Psychosis is a break with reality. So it can have cause problems with thought process or thought content. Thought content problems are things like hallucinations or delusions. People see things that aren't there, hear things that aren't there. Often um, with drugs, they're um, uh, suspicious delusions, like someone's listening to me or the police are after me. Um, And thought process disorders, which are also can also be caused by cannabis are when someone brings up all kinds of irrelevant detail into their speech is tangential and goes off into tangents, which don't really make any sense to the listener. And it's hard to know what causes a psychosis. Um, it's, it's a symptom like fever. So fever can be caused by the flu. It can be caused by cancer. It can be caused by an infection of the joint. Um, psychosis can be caused by drug use. Uh, It can be caused by schizophrenia. It can be caused by bipolar disorder. And so it's incumbent upon the clinician to figure out what's causing the psychosis and then treat it. I remember I had a patient uh, maybe 10 years ago, and he was smoking weed on a daily basis for several years. He was 20 years old. He went down to Florida to work with his cousin and got psychotic, broke into some random woman's home that he didn't even know, got caught by the police, thrown in jail for a month. And so he had this psychosis that didn't go away. It was untreated for a month. It took many months to get him uh, uh, unpsychotic, non-psychotic. And it was really terrifying for him, really super traumatic. Mm -hmm. What do you tell somebody like that? I remember another young person I had, and he went away to college and Ivy League school and smoking on a daily basis. And all of a sudden thought that TMZ was following him around to get an interview because of his uh, sexual prowess. Everybody was very mm-hmm. jealous of his, his, it was very grandiose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was going to arrange a golf game with the Kings of Leon, the rock mm-hmm. band. And he was writing a letter to the prime minister of Britain. And uh, these were kids with no family history of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, mm-hmm. no premorbid psychotic. What do you tell the family? What do you tell the young person at that point when they say, is this bipolar disorder with psychotic features? Is this schizophrenia? What do you, what do you tell them? 
The important thing to say is, I don't know, and there's no way to know. Once right. drugs are mixed into the picture, um, what has to happen is, is the person needs to have an evaluation. The drugs need to be pulled out of the system. There's no right. way even the best psychiatrist can know what's causing a psychosis when there's that kind of input into the system. Um, so, you know, if the person is unable to stop using outside of a hospital, he or she needs to be in a hospital where you are guaranteed there are no drugs going into the person's body. And that way, you know, the psychotic symptoms, if they're due to the drugs will resolve um, and the, and whatever else is there can be treated. Sometimes the psychotic symptoms don't go away. And I suggest that's usually because of a, of a psychiatric disorder that was masked by the drugs. Um, but there has to be a sophisticated assessment of what's happening rather than just blasting away with some treatment or other. And some, that's, that's an important distinction. Um, sometimes the kids have to go back into the ring and do some more research and they go back to marijuana or cannabis and all of a sudden uh, they're psychotic again and they're, they wound up in a psychiatric hospital and they've lost their fraternity and lost their semester at college. And, and it's, it's humiliating. It's embarrassing. Uh, they are afraid now because they basically broke their brain. So it's it's quite traumatic, and yeah, I say the same thing that you that you said. Uh, number one thing we do here is get rid of the cannabis, get rid of the alcohol, get rid of all everything. Let your brain heal, mm -hmm. and hopefully this will go away. And it was just a substance induced psychotic episode. Um, really super scary. Now, how do you recommend parents talk to uh, their kid if they think that he has a problem with cannabis? This is touchy. Uh, and what makes it difficult? I guess that's the question. What makes it difficult is that usually people with a substance use disorder are hiding it from the people who love them. And because they essentially have to do that in order to continue, you have to hide it from people who care about you because otherwise they will do something to intervene. Um, and I talk a lot with families about how to talk to their adolescent kids about their use of substances, including marijuana. Um, I uh, emphasize an empathic way of doing it. I emphasize looking at particular issues rather than any global concerns. Um, and I uh, emphasize um, getting them to help as soon as possible. Um, and so I, if I'm talking with a family about how to talk to their adolescent about this substance use, I, I look at the level of anger. Sometimes parents are furious with their, their lovely child who has now been lying, cheating, stealing, and doing right. things because of the drug use. And it's understandable. And so I help them manage the anger, but focus on the problem at hand. And the problem is, as you alluded to earlier, that junior has quit the lacrosse team. He's not going to school and, and his friends aren't coming around anymore. Mm -hmm. So let's focus on that. Uh, if the problem is serious enough, the person should go to inpatient. Especially if uh, he's not going to school, uh, if he's uh, having psychotic features, uh, if he's violent, uh, and if he's unwilling to go, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, and on an outpatient basis, often you can work with these kids. And, you know, if they're willing to cut down or even move towards uh, sobriety from the substance, I'll try to work with them. And oftentimes it works, frankly. I mean, I think that um, one of the keys is getting the uh, adolescent allied with another group of adolescents who can help him or her move towards a, a sober life. I love AA and it, um, and I send people to young person's meetings because they can meet other kids who are just like they are. The only thing is they can't use drugs or alcohol. Um, the problem you alluded to earlier is a real one. Uh, sometimes kids will go to an AA meeting and the other kids are addicted to alcohol or cocaine and, and the kind of the marijuana gets looked down on. The reality is in a lot of places, there are marijuana anonymous meetings, which are for marijuana. In a lot of places, there are more sophisticated AA or NA groups who understand that for the kid who's dependent on marijuana, that's his or her drug of choice. And it, it should be treated like other 
drugs of choice. I love that you mentioned uh, the marijuana anonymous meetings. And I think even now, because of the pandemic, you can go to a Zoom meeting uh, pretty much anywhere in the country. So you could find, I know in New York City, you've got marijuana anonymous meetings, right? Absolutely. And I think that's that's one advantage that we've gotten from the new Zoom era with, with COVID, that you can go to, yeah. you, not only can you find an AA or an NA meeting in any place around the country, but that if people want to lurk in an AA meeting and see what it's like, it's it's in a way much easier than walking down into a church basement. So you can look at what's happening in the AA meeting, keep your camera off and realize it's a very empathic, lovely group of people who are there to help each other. And and so it's a way to tip one's toes into the water, which I think is tough for adolescents to do, understandably. I think so too. And I love your point about anger. And the parents, I believe a lot of fear is underneath that anger, right? They're really afraid the, the kids on drugs, uh, the kids uh, out of control. And I think they're, they're just reacting. So it's like, if you can get away from your emotional reactive center, uh, take a break. Uh, if you find the kids, uh, you know, uh, vaping device under his bed, or you find a stash of cannabis, uh, don't react that day, right? Take some time, take some space, go for a walk and have a conversation, like you say, that's curious and non-judgmental, but still uh, elicit some information from, from, your, from your child. But, you know, do you find that parents oftentimes don't even know they have leverage? They'll say to me, well, he, does, he won't go. He won't go to see a, a counselor. He won't go for a drug evaluation. Um, you know, he won't go to school. He won't give it up. Uh, and I'm wondering, what do you think is going on that they don't know they have any leverage? And what do you think gets in the way of using it? I think you make a good point. I think on two levels, parents underestimate the amount of leverage that they have. I think the prevention experts say very clearly that you want your child to have in, in his or her head that drumbeat from mom and dad, that we think this is bad, this is dangerous. So you're trying to push off the first use of the substance from that 12 or 13 year old till he's 16, 17, 18. So, so that's the first thing from a prevention perspective. Um, you know, Even though the, the kid may say, I don't care what you say, I'm not listening to you. They're listening to you. They can't help it. Mm -hmm. But secondly, when the kid actually has a problem, I think you're right. Uh, parents have much more leverage than they believe. Um, and, you know, I have kids too, and certainly try to be empathic and caring and supportive of them. But there are times when parents need to put their foot down. And that does come when the child's uh, function is impaired, especially at, at, at a late adolescent stage, when that function is going to really tell us what's going to happen in the rest of that person's life. So um, if an adolescent needs to go to an IOP, if he or she she needs to go to see an evaluation with a therapist. If he or she needs to go to inpatient, I think parents need to at some point require that. Um, and that's a really hard thing to do. And I, a lot of my work is helping families, you know, approach that in, in an empathic, caring, but serious way. In the case, in the same way that you would approach your child, if God forbid he or she had cancer. I mean, it's serious. And the fact that you don't want to get the treatment doesn't mean that you don't need to have it. The parents really need help with support and help around boundary setting, help around drawing up a con uh, consequence, uh, logical consequences flow chart, right? I think part of the resistance to setting down boundaries and consequences and using their leverage is there's so much uh, reaction, so much so much of an outburst in the, and so much defiance that's the response of the young person who's uh, confronted around their drug, uh, their drug problem. And they can be quite vicious verbally right. and parents don't like to be the bad guy. Yeah, of course not. And I understand that. Uh, and I, that's why I recommend that if parents have a child who has got a 
looks like has a drug or alcohol problem, they, the parents, should also have an advisor to help them manage the situation. And, and I function in that role when I'm not treating the adolescent, someone else is treating the adolescent. And um, you can help them frame their response so it's the best possible response and prepare for those things that the adolescent is likely to say. Because frankly, there are a few things they're likely to say, and it, it's not really a mystery what they're going to say. Um, and it's helping uh, parents set up those tripwires, I call them. So if, you know, if the child just smokes pot once in a while, you may not like it and you may say that, but if the tripwire is that if his grades start dropping or his friends stop dropping, start dropping away, or he changes activities or stops activities, that should be a tripwire to warn everyone. And I usually, you mentioned logical consequences. I'm glad you did because ones that are very logical are things like if you smoke pot or if you drink, we're not giving you the car keys. So that stop. makes sense, doesn't it? Right. And, and, the, and you can't really argue that one, although people do. Um, but other ones that, you know, if, you're, if your performance in school is slipping, um, we're not going to allow you to use alcohol or marijuana. Now, to say that to a 17-year-old is hard, right? Because you can't really control what a 17-year-old does outside of the house. But I often tell parents what it sounds like you tell them is that don't es- underestimate um, the, the power you have when you talk to your kids. And, you know, even if you're decreasing their substance use by 50% when they're out of the house, you're still in a good place. And research shows uh, that one protective factor is the parental expectation of non-use. I expect you not to use drugs. Mm -hmm. I hope that you don't smoke marijuana until you are 24, 25 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love you too much to continue to enable you to hurt your brain. Mm -hmm. It's my yeah. job to step in here. This is hurting you. And I, I just can't stand by and do nothing. Right. And I think that's the way to put it. Not to get into the morality of it, not even get the legality of it. I mean, no. not that, it, you know, you could have a long, interesting conversation about the legality of THC, but it's irrelevant to your to your uh, 16 or 17 year old. And they so, would use it against me also. And they would probably win if they were using the country's logic. Sure. You can get a public health argument and we could talk about that and go to a conference and talk about it. But if you're impaired by the substance, the public health argument is irrelevant. Yeah. And I guess uh, to bring up uh, uh, in a non-shaming way, in a non-violent way, just maybe list some of the things that you've seen. Uh, You know, uh, there's two failed grades, uh, you know, You've uh, maybe you were kicked off the soccer team, Uh, your girlfriend left, and, uh, you know, there's money missing, uh, and you're smoking in the house mm-hmm. and I'm worried about you, right. uh, I'm very, very worried about you. And, uh, studies show that this hurts, uh, teenage brains and the brains of young adults. And I'm worried about IQ and I'm worried about anxiety and depression and suicide. And I'm worried about your future. Uh, and I, I love you and I, I, I will help you every step of the way uh, as, as we find someone to help you with your marijuana problem. I believe it's a problem. We can agree to disagree, but I need you to follow through and go for an evaluation. Where do the parents go? How do you access, um, how do you access uh, uh, an expert? And what's, what's the first line expert that they should uh, uh, seek out, I wonder? 
what they're looking for is someone who's knowledgeable about addiction. And I'm saying that very carefully because not all physicians are knowledgeable about addiction. Um, and some, you know, people with credentials like licensed professional counselor, or licensed social worker are extremely knowledgeable. So I, I counsel parents to um, ask in the uh, school counseling office who a good therapist is for their child, um, ask their pediatrician who a good therapist is, because usually those individuals have access and have knowledge of who's, who does a good job. Um, organizations like the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry or the American Society of Addiction Medicine can uh, direct people. Uh, SAMHSA has a website for directing people to addiction uh, specialists. But I, I usually recommend that it's someone who really understands addiction because otherwise they really won't understand what's happening in front of them. That's a very good point. And uh, absolutely, there's not much uh, addiction training in medicine, is there? Right. Certainly wasn't in my med school or my right. even even my psychiatry residency. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so how are cannabis problems treated? Um, first, an assessment, as we've been talking here, to really look at what the um, problems associated with the cannabis are. Because before you can start treating a problem, you have to know what you're pointed at. And so I always use that as a basis for my treatment, especially with an adolescent. Look, the concern is here that you're not engaged with school as you want to be, um, that your friends are dropping away. So if we can get a decrease in the THC use and the person has an improvement in, in those criteria, I'm happy with that. I aggressively treat withdrawal from cannabis because I think it, it does exist. It's probably the main reason people go back to using cannabis. Um, and I treat it with, with psychotherapeutic maneuvers, but I also, there are a few medications which have been modestly helpful with the use of, for the, for the treatment of withdrawal. The most important thing is to acknowledge that it exists because mm-hmm. the user knows it exists, but people tell him there's no withdrawal from marijuana. You're crazy. He's not crazy. He's feeling irritable. He's insomniac. He's craving. And uh, that if you treat it and acknowledge it, usually people feel a lot better and they, and they know that you understand what's going on. So that's the first part is getting someone engaged in treatment. Oftentimes, you know, even when someone hasn't used for a while, um, you know, relapse prevention is important because, you know, any 10 year old, in America can get marijuana if he wants it. And so yeah, it's sure. offered often. And so you have to have refusal techniques for understanding what you're going to do when you walk into the college dorm and if someone else orders, offers you a joint, mm-hmm. what you're going to do if you're on a date and the person says you want to smoke, right. what you're going to do, you know, if you walk into a party and there's a waft of, <laughs> of marijuana smoke all around. So those are the short-term and the long-term treatments. I love that you say you aggressively treat marijuana withdrawal uh, because it does exist. And it's probably the number one thing sending them back uh, to a relapse. What medications do you use? I'll tell you what I use. Um, You know, I I don't use the uh, uh, THC analogs. I I don't think the data are great. I use things like uh, trazodone to help with sleep. Um, I use some anxiolytics like gabapentin to help with the anxiety. Um, So I want to be very careful not to cause an addiction to some other substance or a medication in the person, but I, I want to aggressively treat what they have. So I do it with medications, but I also do it with um, self-relaxation techniques and with just an acknowledgement that this is happening to you. And it will actually resolve. It's not lifelong, but it is for many weeks to months. I like gabapentin also. I like trazodone. I like a little bit of mirtazapine for sleep. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's no FDA approved medication for the cannabis withdrawal yet, but uh, I like all those. And uh, I think NAC, N-acetylcysteine that you can get at GNC, uh, I think up to 2,400 milligrams a day or 3,000 milligrams a day. Um, My patients say the only thing, side effect they get from that is a little bit of gas. Right. Yeah. I I haven't found it that effective, but it's perfectly legitimate to use it. 
I don't think it can hurt. Right. You know? So I guess the last question I've got is um, uh, if you have a child in middle school and or elementary school and you as a parent want to be proactive and do as many I guess, preventative measures as possible. What kind of talk do you have with your kids? Say the kid in middle school, seventh grade, about cannabis and about alcohol, I guess, but we could keep it to cannabis for this podcast. I'm glad you're bringing it up because parents often assume that the fifth, sixth, seventh graders has no idea that there's cannabis out there. And of course they do. Um, And and the best advice is to use age appropriate language with that child to try to understand what's happening at the school and his or her social group. And I think that's not only for the age, but for the development of your particular middle schooler, because kids are different. I mean, some are extremely sophisticated and some are are not. Um, But I think asking questions and, and letting that child know that you're open to talking about whatever comes up at school, whether it has you has to do with people offering drugs, whether it has to do with sex, and that you are there and, and we'll, we'll discuss these things in a non-putative and non-shaming way. So um, I, I love it when parents come home, they come to me and they say, my kid asked me this really weird question about drugs and he, she's only in seventh grade. I said, that's great. She's asking you. She's not asking her, her friends in the schoolyard about drugs. She's asking mom and dad. That's so wonderful. when you when you have that uncomfortable conversation, it's great. And then you can, you know, educate your child as he or she needs to be educated. So you start with an open mind. You start with curiosity. Uh, This is, hey, what are kids saying about pornography? Have you ever heard the word? What are kids saying about uh, uh, cannabis, marijuana, weed? Right. Are any of your friends using it? Mm-hmm. It's it's a information gathering, uh, and and non punitive. Just let's open the conversation. And I Absolutely. want you to know that I'm here, and and I just want you to know, you know, that your dad and I have a, or your mom and I have a. Uh, uh, rule in this house um, that we would like you not to drink and we expect you not to drink and we expect you not to use drugs. Um, And uh, that being said, if you ever find yourself in trouble, uh, give us a call or if you, you know, it's hard, isn't it? That that double message is so hard, especially when they're in high school where you want to say, I I think, as you said, we have an expectation that you're not going to use drugs or alcohol, but if you do, and you're in trouble, you can call me anytime 24 seven, and we'll discuss uh-huh. it later, and I will pick you up. So but but it's look, it's a double message you have to give, you know, to children all along the line and understand, usually when they're 18, they go someplace They're not in your house anymore. So he or she is going to have to make his or her own decisions. So you want to set them up for those decisions when they're 12 and 13. Absolutely. Um, I would like to, before we close, I have two resources to uh, offer for families of those struggling with cannabis use disorder. Before I do, what do you think of Al-Anon for parents of a kid with a a cannabis uh, problem? I think the same thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's great to try out. I think parents should definitely go and see if it's productive for them. As I recommend, actually, every patient try out an AA or an NA meeting. I mean, it's not helpful for everybody, but it is a great place to start uh, to get some understanding of what you're going through. Frankly, it's a good place to get referrals, too, because often there are experts in finding good clinicians. Oh, I think they've been through, uh, you know, three or four clinicians by the time they they hit an Al-Anon uh, meeting. And I agree with you. I think nobody understands like another parent who's gone through, uh, you know, uh, having a kid with a, a substance abuse problem. There are two free resources I'd like to make uh, people aware of. Uh, Hazelden Betty Ford offers a free virtual family program. It's a one-day format. They talk about the disease model, boundaries, communication, recovery management, and it's available in both English and Spanish. 
Hazelden Betty Ford also offers ongoing professional coaching for cost. So parents can sign up for six sessions, three months, 12 months, et cetera. And also if uh, parents Google uh, www.druginfo.org, that organization offers free parent coaching and free parent support groups. I think there's about five of them per week on Zoom. So Dr. Westreich, it's been really a real pleasure And I so appreciate you coming on the show and presenting some wonderfully clarifying information for our listening audience on cannabis. Thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the hero's journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.